Well, again, welcome. Good morning. We are gonna we're gonna dive right in this morning. Do you remember a time uh, when you were young? Do you remember being coaxed into jumping into the deep end for the first time when you were little? I do. I must have been about six years old. Uh, I was taking swimming lessons. It was in the Omaha area. That's how I know I was about six or so. We still lived up there, and in some YMCA in the Omaha area, this this lady was trying to coax me into jumping off of the low diving board into what I was sure was my certain death. You know, I call her a lady. Uh, looking back, she was probably like a high school or a college student, but to six-year-old me, she just will have been about 50 years old. And she's trying to get me to jump off that board, and I remember refusing and telling her, you can't touch. Like everyone knows, you can't get into water that's deeper than your head while your feet are on the bottom. If you can't touch, you can't jump in. I'd say, you can't touch. And this young lady lied to me. And she said, yes, I can, just jump. Now, I was six, I wasn't dumb. I also wasn't blind. And I remember telling her, I can see your legs moving. You, you cannot touch. I should have said, like, I'm six, I'm not blind. You know, I, I, I don't know exactly how big 12 feet is, but I know what deep end means, right? And, and I know you can't be more than about five, six. So, so you're not going to cut it in this instance, unless you've got a 13-foot-tall lifeguard around someplace. This thing ain't happening. You know, I, I wanted the one in charge of me. I wanted to know that she had her feet planted firmly on the ground. You know, as adults, we can be a little bit like six-year-old me when it comes to faith. By definition, faith involves believing in things we can't see. Uh, the, the poet John Greenleaf Whittier wrote that the steps of faith fall on the seeming void, but they find the rock beneath. We want to know what that rock is. For us as Christians, we know Jesus Christ is the rock. He's not just our lifeguard whose feet are on the floor. He's the floor. He is the rock. He promises to catch us if we take this leap of faith into believing in him. That's why it's so important for, for us to, to hear messages like last week at Easter when we talk about evidence. The evidence of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we know this thing is, is on firm footing, to continue the metaphor. But what is this step of faith? What's, what's our faith look like? What, is the, what are the characteristics of this faith of ours that God expects us to take. That's what we want to talk about this morning. It's what Paul talked about where we are, where we jump back into the book of Romans this morning. We took a break last week for Easter, uh, but where we dive in this morning, um, here's sort of where we find ourselves. We're, in the, we're still in the second section. We're at the end of the second section of this book of Romans, and Paul's main idea is that people are saved as a gift of God, a free gift that God gives to people who believe. 
Paul says we are justified. That's a churchy word that just means uh, we're judged as righteous. We're declared to be righteous in God's courtroom, uh, just as a free gift of God's grace. Uh, the first section of the book of Romans, to go backward even further, Paul spent the first section of the body of this letter telling us why we need to be justified by faith, because we can't be justified by our behavior. None of us are, are good enough for God to look at our lives and call us righteous. So he gives a free gift, justification by faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's where we're at. And as an example of justification by faith, Paul has held up Abraham, the patriarch, the hero of Genesis chapters 12 through 24. And Paul uses Abraham as his example to say, if Abraham, and because Abraham was justified by faith alone, that's how you and I must be justified, declared righteous by God, by faith alone. And that was a couple of weeks ago, he talked about that, and and then, well, a couple of lessons ago, and then, and then in our last lesson in Romans, Paul talked about Abraham's inheritance, that Abraham's eternal inheritance was guaranteed by faith alone. By extension, our eternal inheritance, eternal life, living with the Lord and all those who have loved him and believed in him during their lives, eternal bliss, the new heavens, the new earth, all of that stuff, every uh, tear dried and all of our sorrows taken away and where there's no more death. That is guaranteed by faith alone. And, and now here's where today's passage fits logically in that flow of thought. If we want to have an inheritance like Abraham had, we've got to have faith like Abraham had faith. So what does faith like Abraham look like? That's what Paul wants to teach us about today in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 25. As we read, we're really jumping in in, in mid-sentence, so I'm going to back up and read Romans 4, 16, but we'll really start our study in 4, 17. Let's read together Romans 4, beginning in verse 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, who are Jewish, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who believed apart from the law, who is the father of us all. Now verse 17, As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom Abraham believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, Abraham believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, And being fully assured that what God had promised, God was also able to perform. Therefore, that faith was also credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now, 
Not for his sake only was it written that faith was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will also be credited. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. There's our passage today. At the beginning of verse 17, Paul is reiterating something that he has already said. He's reminding his readers uh, of something he said before, and that is that Abraham is the father of everyone who believes apart from the law. Um, Abraham is the father of those who, who just believe by faith that God will do what he says and are saved by that faith. And so that way, Abraham is our father. But, but what is that, exactly does that mean? What does it mean? If Abraham is the father of all those who believe like him, what does it mean to believe like Abraham? That's what we want to talk about today. And before I say anything about what it means to have faith like Abraham, I want to know one, one difference. The content of our faith, what we are required to believe today, has to be different than the specifics of the content uh, of Abraham's faith. Paul is going to teach us, and the New Testament teaches us, for us to be justified by God, declared righteous by God. We have to believe, like Peter said, in the name of Jesus. There's no other name uh, under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. The name of Jesus we have to believe. And Paul will teach us in this book, he will mention it at the end of today's passage, we have to believe that Jesus died on the cross uh, because he was paying the punishment our sins deserve. Um, and he was raised again uh, as proof that that was true. That's the content of our faith. Abraham couldn't have known all of those details. But as we'll see today, everything God did with Abraham, everything Abraham believe, believed, pointed toward Jesus Christ. So our, our faith, the content of our faith is very similar, but different. So, so what does it mean to have faith like Abraham? And how is that a... How is our saving faith like his, even if some of the details of the content may have been different? Well, the first point I want to make from this passage today is that faith like Abraham's is God-centered. Abraham's faith was very God-centered faith. And that might sound like super obvious, like, duh. Like, did, like, did you go to seminary to learn that one, that faith is like in God? But, uh, but bear with me. Because much of what passes for Christianity today, I don't find terribly God-centered. I find it very self-centered. And, and Abraham's faith was very God-centered. And, and I really want you to see the difference between a God-centered faith and a self-centered faith. And it's very tricky sometimes to tell the difference. Abraham's faith was very God-centered. At the point in Abraham's life where, where Paul sort of lifts him up and his story up as the example of our faith. Abraham had a very big personal problem. It was infertility. Many of you know the pain of, of, inf of fertility problems. Abraham was very old. His wife was very old, Sarah, and they had no children. And God had promised that they would be the, the ancestors of countless descendants. But they didn't have any children. That was their big problem. Paul says in verse 17, though, 
that Abraham continued to believe he would have a child because, in verse 17, right here, um, Abraham believed in the God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do exist. Now, just Abraham's faith, he believed in the God who made the dead alive. As far as Abraham's story goes, do you know who Abraham was talking about? If Abraham believed that God could make the dead alive, who was the dead person in Abraham's story? It can be tempting for us to, to see Jesus in that, and it does point to Jesus, but Abraham didn't believe that God would make Jesus alive. What Abraham believed here, if you peek down into verse 19, Abraham says he and Sarah were the dead people God would have to make alive. Abraham knew that as far as fertility went, he and, he and his wife Sarah's bodies were as good as dead. They had as much chance of having a child as two dead people had a chance of having a child. But Abraham's faith was not in his ability to have children. Abraham believed God can make what is dead alive. God can call things into being that don't yet exist just as confidently as if they already did exist. That's, that was the object of Abraham's faith. Robert Mounts, Dr. Robert Mounts, in his commentary on Romans, he said that Abraham's faith was not in the invincible human spirit rising to the occasion against all odds, but was a deep inner confidence that God was absolutely true to his word. That's why Paul said, Abraham, in verse 18, that Abraham hoped against hope. Against hope, Abraham believed he had hope. What Paul means there is Abraham had no normal natural reason to have hope that he and Sarah would have a child. But he did have hope because he had the promise of God sort of in his pocket. God had promised he would have a child, and God's powerful enough to make the dead alive, to call things into being that don't yet exist, and be just as confidently as if they did already exist. That was the hope Abraham had. It was God-focused. They only had a God-centered reason to believe they would have this promised child. So, so why? It reminds me of Jesus saying one time, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. It's a God-centered faith. So, before we move on, why specifically did Abraham and Sarah continue to believe that they would have this promised child? Because they knew God was capable, but it's more than that. They believed they would have this child because God was able and, and this is very important, because God had specifically promised that they would have a child. Because, because this is God's redemptive plan. It was, he promised Abraham that he would bless all of the families of the world through his descendants. So Abraham was going to have a descendant. So Abraham continued to believe he was going to have a child because God was capable and because God had promised. That means Abraham did not believe he would have a child because he wanted it so badly, or because he could pray the right prayers, or because he could speak it into existence by believing without doubt. No. 
God had promised. God was capable. So he was having that baby. So if we want to have faith like Abraham, so that we can have an inheritance like Abraham, we have to make sure that our faith is God-centered, God-focused. And here's why that's so important, even though it sounds super obvious. Because as I mentioned, much of what gets labeled Christianity today, I find very self-centered, self-focused. It's more about getting results for the worshiper than glorifying the one who is supposedly being worshipped. That's why our next point is just the opposite end of this. If we want to have faith like Abraham's, we have to understand faith like Abraham's is not self-centered. It's not self-focused. Much of what passes for Christianity today is about I have this list of desires, and they're not sinful desires. And I just have to figure out sort of how to unlock God so that I can get these non-sinful things that I want. God, God wants, some of these systems teach, God wants me to have the health, the, the financial situation, um, the happiness that I long for as long as it's not sinful. God wants me to have these things. I've just got to figure out how to, how to do Christianity right so that I can unlock God and all of his blessings for me. Do you hear how that's very self-focused? If that is my faith, my faith is largely about me and getting what I want from a God who I know can deliver. Well, if that's how Christianity is supposed to work, we have some real problems in the Bible. If that's how Christianity is supposed to work, if I do Christianity correctly, I should get what I want as long as it's not sinful from God. If that's how it's supposed to work, John the Baptist deserves his head back. Do you know what I mean by that? You know the story of John the Baptist? Here's some high praise. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And at one point, Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but Jesus said, there's never been a better guy ever born than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise. Yet John the Baptist found himself imprisoned by Herod. He sent word to Jesus, basically, you know I'm in prison, right? And then Herod executed John the Baptist by having him beheaded. If Christianity is about unlocking God to get the non-sinful blessings we want, how do we explain John the Baptist? How do we explain the... There, do you know there are Christians in North Korea as word trickles out through China, through Christians there? There are Christians in North Korea and, and maybe even right now, I don't know what time of the day it even is, but, but maybe right now they are huddled. They, they, they meet in, the, in cellars in, in, in very secret places and they worship in whispers uh, very quietly. Always under the threat that if they're discovered, they, they may be executed or sent to an even worse prison camp. If Christianity is about unlocking the blessings God has for us, does that mean that are we so much better Christians than they are because we have all the freedom and, and blessings that we have? No. Christianity is not about me unlocking what I want. Christianity is, is more about me living for the glory of God whatever in whatever circumstances in this broken world I am in. 
You know, in this passage, or excuse me, in Abraham's story that Paul uses as an example in this passage, Abraham did wind up getting the desire of his heart. Sarah gave birth to Isaac, the promised child. But that was sure to happen because God had promised. That's one of those wonderful examples where God's uh, promise and Abraham's desires met. Those are great times. But Abraham didn't get Isaac just because he wanted it so badly. I mean, that would, that would be an affront to all of the Christians who have struggled with their own infertility issues for, for years and years. Like, my level of desire and faith will not make things so because I'm a Christian. I want to mention here that because faith like Abraham's is not self-centered, it also can, can be honest about our present realities. See, if, if Christianity is, is about um, me figuring out how to get God to, to give me the circumstances that I want in life, then when circumstances are bad, i got to do some mental gymnastics to, to explain why my circumstances are so bad. And, and one way we can do that is to sort of ignore or deny present reality. Um, Abraham and Sarah did not deny. They, they didn't have to go around pretending, oh, we can still have a, we can still have a child. This is very possible. Um, they didn't deny their present realities. They knew. They had no hope in themselves to have a child. Um, sometimes if I believe that Christianity will, will, will help unlock my good circumstances, I have to sort of ignore painful situations. God wants to work through painful situations. God doesn't um, make me pretend that things are good when they're not. Um, God also doesn't... Uh, some religious systems teach people to sort of transcend their painful uh, circumstances through meditation and things like that. There's a lot of Eastern religions. It's a very uh, Buddhist thought that the, the pain of my physical reality isn't actual real reality, full reality, and I need to just kind of rise above that. There's no room in Christianity for calling suffering something other than suffering and, and, and trying to convince myself the pain doesn't hurt. You know, later in this book, Paul is going to command us, when he's teaching us how this faith of ours is supposed to impact the way we live, Paul's going to command us, we're to weep with those who weep. We're not to, to teach them that they shouldn't be feeling the pain that they're feeling. Uh, we do want to help. We don't want always, um, we want to help people get, get better. That's a Christian ethic too. Jesus helped people's suffering but we don't want to um, sort of insult someone's faith and make people believe like if they were a real Christian, they wouldn't feel the pain. Or on the other side, there's another kind of non-Christian teaching that seeps into Christianity that says, basically, we would never word it this way, but basically, the reason you're suffering is because God is paying you back for what you've done. You're sort of getting what you deserve. And there's no room in Christianity for that. Now, there, there, it is true that we do reap what we sow, and, and sometimes when we sin, there are consequences for that sin. Uh, that's, Christianity doesn't do away with that, for sure. But all of the wrath we deserve for our sin was poured out on Jesus. 
So there's no room in Christianity for, for this idea that God is still paying us back, punishing us for our sins. That if we are good, that only good will happen to us. That's karma, not Christianity. And there's no room in Christianity for karma. So Christianity, because it is not to be self-focused, I can call my pain, my painful situation, what it actually is. I don't have to blame God uh, like, like he's somehow culpable and wrong for allowing it because he didn't promise me uh, that I wouldn't have it. Uh, I, I don't have to try to rise above it. I can just, I can, I can suffer. I can mourn. And I can glorify my God during those times. Me-centered faith, faith that's by and large about my circumstances and tr trying to get God to improve them. Uh, faith that says, you know, God, here's, here's what I need if you expect me to believe in you. And if you don't deliver this, well, then I'm going I'm to take my toys and go home. Um, that's not faith like Abraham. Abraham um, didn't believe hard enough and, and begged long enough so that God finally relented. Abraham just had to believe God would accomplish what God had promised. I want to illustrate what I'm, what I'm trying to explain uh, in another way. This is a, a story I have shared before, but uh, it's a true story. I heard a pastor share the story of, uh, of a biker, a rather rough-looking biker, that came into his office, which is great. And this biker was just broken. He was weeping. He was crying because his wife had left him. And in the course of their conversation, this biker said to this pastor, I want to become a Christian. And uh, this pastor, his, his response can seem heartless. Uh, it, it was definitely risky. But there's a real important truth in it. When this biker said, I want to become a Christian, this pastor took a deep breath and said, I don't think you do want to become a Christian. And this biker was shocked. He said, you don't? And the pastor said, no, I think you want your wife to come home. And those aren't the same things. You see, what this pastor had discerned is that this biker was broken when his, and hurt when his wife left. And he tried everything he could try to get what he wanted, his wife, to come home. He tried coercion, manipulation, um, uh, motivation, what, however he could motivate her to come home. He tried it, and none of it worked. So then he decided he would try God to see if God would do for him what he wanted. And this pastor knew that becoming a Christian for this biker would involve, first and foremost, this biker understanding he had one problem that was much bigger than his wife leaving him. His biggest problem was his sin and what his sin did to his relationship with God. It separated him from God. What his sin would require eternally, that he, that he go to hell forever and ever. That was his biggest problem. And becoming a Christian would, would mean accepting that what Jesus did at the cross solved his greatest problem his sin problem, his separation from God. And then this biker's uh, faith, becoming a Christian, would mean glorifying the God who justified him, who saved him. Whether God changed 
his wife's heart and made her come home, caused her to come home or not. God can do those things and we can, it's good to pray those things. God wants to hear the desires of our hearts. But we can glorify God whether or not we get what we want. Christianity is about understanding what God has promised and then, catch this, understanding what God has promised is enough. Do you know that in the inheritance we talked about in the last passage in Romans, what God has promised for those who believe and who are justified, God has promised to give us everything for eternity. He's, he's offered us, he'd offer, he's offered to give us infinity for eternity. Yet we so easily believe God is holding out on us. That God does, should give us more than what he's already promised. But that is me-centered faith. And, and faith like Abraham's is not me-centered, it's God-centered. That's why Paul says in verse 20 this, Abraham, Abraham did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God. He was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, even before God kept his promise, while Abraham was still waiting. Abraham didn't let his circumstances cause him to stop believing in God. Now, did Abraham have moments of doubt? Yes. Did Abraham mess up? Did Abraham try to coerce God, try to force God's hand? Did Abraham try to unlock God's promises? Did Abraham try to make God fulfill God's promises to Abraham the way Abraham wanted them fulfilled and in the timing Abraham wanted them fulfilled? Yes, he did. And that caused a lot of pain in his life and in his family. But as someone once said, Abraham kept his soul anchored in faith. Abraham had momentary doubts that were like potholes in a solid roadbed of consistent faith. That's what our faith is supposed to be like, not perfection. It won't be the absence of doubts uh, and mess-ups and sins, but those things should be potholes, temporary setbacks and bumps in a constant roadbed of faith that God will do what God has promised and God has promised enough. And that's really what Paul says next about Abraham's faith as, as Paul defines Abraham's faith. I think what we see in Romans 4, 21 and 22 is Paul's definition of Abraham's faith. You want to know what faith like Abraham is? Faith like Abraham's faith is? Here it is. Verses 21 and 22 say this. He, and that's Abraham. Abraham was fully convinced that what God promised God was also able to do. So indeed, that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. That's a pretty good working definition of, of what are like the character of our faith. We're supposed to be fully convinced that what God has promised, God will do. That's the roadbed of our faith. That's one reason we come together like this, uh, we come together in church. Uh, why I always encourage people to be in a church where they teach through the Bible. It's important to know what God has promised and what God hasn't so that we are like depending upon God for the right things. One of the biggest mistakes people make that make them disillusioned with God is they, they hold God accountable 
for failing to keep promises that God never made. Like that biker, if God doesn't bring my wife back, I'm not going to believe in him anymore. Well, buddy, God didn't promise to bring your wife back. He can. He might. But we don't have that promise. We're to depend that God has promised enough, and we depend that he will keep those enough promises. And that keeps us buoyant. When times are dark and tough and painful, we don't deny the reality of those situations. But we also don't deny that God is still good, even during those times. And sometimes, God is most glorified during our painful situations. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul said we, we hold these truths, the gospel and God's promises, in, in earthen vessels and clay pots, and our pots get all beat up by this fallen world, but the truth of that gospel sometimes shines through the cracks in our clay jars, through the pains and the hurts and the struggles. And people can look at us and, and go, wow, you can still, how can you still glorify and thank and honor God during this terrible time in your life? That's when people know this is real to us. It's a lot easier to, to pretend we glorify God when everything's good but to thank and honor and, and live for his glory when life is tough. That's a different story. Now, I'm about to go to, the, to our last point of this sermon, but before I do, I want to ask you a question that I want you to consider before we go on. Here's the question. Why would God deal with Abraham in this promise that he made to Abraham? Why would God deal with Abraham the way he dealt with Abraham? And if you don't know that story, here's what I'm asking. God had promised to give Abraham this, this promised heir, this child. Why did God make Abraham wait until he was 100 years old to have that child? Why didn't God give Abraham that child when Abraham was in his 30s so he could have enjoyed him a while? Do you have an answer to that question? Do you think there was ever a time in Abraham's life when he's like, I know the promise. God's going to give me a child. I know God's capable of keeping this promise. But I cannot fathom why God is waiting so long. You ever think Abraham had thoughts like that? I can promise you Abraham had thoughts like that. We can read the stories in Genesis. For time's sake, we won't. Why did God keep his promise the way he kept his promise? Paul gives us a reason today. It's the link between Abraham's faith and our faith, and it's our last point for today. Um, before we read the verses, here's an important truth to remember when life is hard. Just because we can't understand why God is doing and God is allowing what he's doing and what he's allowing, doesn't mean God doesn't have reasons for doing what he's doing and allowing what he's allowing. Paul tells us, God's reason, at least part of God's reasoning for treating Abraham the way he treated him. Here it is, verses 23, 4, and 5 read this way. But the statement that faith was credited to Abraham, that was not written only for Abraham's sake, but also for, for whose sake? For our sake. Paul and everyone reading this letter. To whom faith will be credited, those who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord for the dead, Jesus was given over because of our transgressions. 
and he was raised for the sake of our justification. You know what Paul just said in those three verses? God dealt with Abraham the way God dealt with Abraham because God was already thinking of us and wanting to teach us what kind of faith we would be required to have. Now, could Abraham have known, hey, that's okay, Sarah, let's hang in there. There are people who are going to live in like 4,000 years that are going to learn from our story. I don't think Abraham would have had any clue about that. But just because he didn't have a clue about it didn't mean that wasn't the plan, because it was. God sort of forced Abraham to believe in the God who could make the dead alive and, and bring a miracle child into the world. Does that ring any bells? Does that sound like our faith at all? It should. And just in case it doesn't, Paul puts the story of Jesus in here. Abraham was forced to believe God could take deadness and bring it back to life. Our faith is about God's that God killed Jesus. When, when, when Paul says that Jesus was given over because of our transgression, he was given over by God to be executed because our sin required death and he died that death for us. And then Jesus was raised again for, our, for the sake of our justification so that we would have the evidence we would need to believe that this faith was true. Abraham believed in the God who could bring the dead back to life. And God orchestrated those events to teach us about the kind of faith we would need to have, which involves believing in the God who can bring the dead back to life. He did it for Jesus. And Paul said elsewhere that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. God will do that for us too. After our death, he will bring us back to life if we believe in Jesus. And all of that together, if I could put it together somewhat succinctly, is what faith like Abraham looks like. If we want to have an inheritance like Abraham, uh, we need to believe like Abraham. What does that mean? Well, faith like Abraham is first. It's faith in the God who makes the dead alive and who summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do exist. Faith like Abraham's is God-centered and God-focused, and it's concerned with what God has promised. And it tries not to get sidetracked and hung up on things God hasn't promised. That's why we learn about what God has promised so that we know we are depending on the right things and we're not uh, blaming God for breaking promises that he hasn't actually kept. Faith like Abraham's, number three, refuses to try to manipulate God into doing our wills, but it bends our wills to match God's. I find myself in a painful situation. I ask myself, has God promised that this situation would not happen? Well, no. Well, then this must be God's will for this season in my life, and I don't understand that. But just because I don't understand the reasons doesn't mean God doesn't have them. Someone once said that if we had all the information God had, we would always make the decisions that God has made. We would agree. We can glorify God even through the hard times, and that's our created purpose. And then faith like Abraham's finds its culmination in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Even though the, the details of Abraham's faith might be different than ours, the object of Abraham's faith is exactly like ours.
the God who handed over Jesus for our sins and raised him back to life to prove that that's what he had done. That is faith like Abraham's. Do you believe? You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to life? That's how one enters into this faith, but walking in this faith is about depending upon what God has promised and not letting our present painful circumstances derail our faith and make us believe that God isn't good. He has given us all things forever. What more could he give? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your promises. I thank you for sending the miracle son, not just Isaac, but Christ, to live a perfect life and to die the death we deserved. And God, thank you that, uh, for the evidence of the resurrection. And God, I pray that you would, in, in me and everyone listening to this, more and more, give us a bedrock of faith in your promises, knowing, understanding what you have promised is more than enough. You will make all, all of our hopes and dreams come true, just maybe not in this fallen world. Help us know that is enough to persevere, as you will teach us in a couple of weeks, in this faith. God, you are, you are the God who can bring the dead back to life. You did that for Jesus. You will do it for us who believe. We love you, Lord. Uh, bless our week. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. That is our time. Have a great week. Hope to see you next week, uh, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. Love you guys. Bye-bye.